Welcome to the Entmoot Podcast. I am Kenny Tallarico. I'm here with Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you? I'm well. Good to see you in person. Yes, we are in person again. Uh, and today we're continuing our discussion of the Silmarillion. Today we're talking about chapters one and two of the Quenta Silmarillion. Sam, can you refresh the listeners on how the Silmarillion is structured so that we understand the context of what the first two chapters of this part of it are. Yeah, so as you may recall from earlier episodes of the podcast, the first chapter of the Silmarillion is the Einal Lindelay, which goes over the creation of the corporeal universe um, and the, the, the creation music associated with that. It's a banger. You should listen to our episode and read it. And you have the Valaquenta, which goes over all of the Valar, you know, the big sort of powerful lord angels of the earth. And that's also great. And then you get into the Quintus Silmarillion, which is a whole bunch of chapters. Uh, we'll take you through what happens in the first two chapters of those today. Um, and then after that, you have some other stuff relating to events from later ages. But the Quintus Silmarillion takes you from the world, it's getting going, stuff goes on all the way through... Uh, you know, no, no spoilers, but some bad stuff happens to some elves towards the end. Yeah, so the the Quentin Silmarillion covers like it's like eighty percent of the of the Silmarillion published book, something like that. It's a really large chunk of it. Yeah, which is why the book is named after it. Yeah, there's a reason it's not called the Ainulindale and other stories. Exactly. <laughs> so. The first two chapters, though, uh, the first chapter is called Of the Beginning of Days, and it really picks up right where the Ainulindale and Valaquenta leave off. Um, just like the title suggests, it's the very beginning of Arda. Yeah, it opens incredibly. You, you know, in earlier episodes, we've referenced Tulkas, who is first named here as Tulkas the Strong, which is as good a primer as any. It opens with Tulkas the Strong... Uh, hearing that there was battle in the Little Kingdom, that refers to Earth, or Ea, the world that is. And he, this battle we're referring to is Melkor, the bad guy, the evil guy, the big, the big baddie, fighting the Valar, the good guys. And he, he's the last um, of the Valar to end the world. He was, did not initially go over. He hears that there's battle coming on. And then I'll just quote directly from the Silmarillion. Uh, so came Tulkas the Strong, whose anger passes like a mighty wind, scattering cloud and darkness before it. And Melkor fled before his wrath and his laughter, and forsook Arda, and there was peace for a long age. And Tulkas remained and become one of the Valar of the kingdom of Arda, but Melkor brooded in the outer darkness, and his hate was given to Tulkas forever after. It's a true Chad-Virgin dichotomy. Yeah, in the purest form, you have this big, strong laughing handsome guy who comes on and then he just beats the shit out of this loser who also is a bad dude who then retreats to the edge of the earth and again literal wording is brooding yeah he's brooding he's coping and seething yeah he he really is well the next thing that happens has to do with uh something that's in this very room me and kenny are sitting in and that's lamps (laughs) a great transition yes talk about the lamps so this world it's unlit you know, the Valar have fires, so they can light stuff via, you know, bonfires, candles. I don't know exactly what they're using, but they have fire. But besides that, there's no lighting. There's certainly no LEDs or a sun. The sun and moon, that happens a lot later. We're not going to get to that for a while. 
Um, the sun and moon are, are you know, that, that's like a third option. So Yavanna, who is one of the Valar, planted all these plants. She planted all these seeds. But there's not enough light for them to do anything. And then she tells, tells Aule, could you get this going? And then team effort here, Aule and Varda and Yavanna and Manwe work together. And they raise these giant lamps at basically the north and south pole. And they're taller than any mountain that exists in the latter days. They're like, go basically up to the uh, upper atmosphere all the way up there. And they light the whole world. And one of them is called Illuwin and one of them is called Ormal. Now, this is actually a, a question for you that you might know the answer to because I don't remember. Does it, when it says that, that they're at the North and South Pole... How is how do we define that on a flat earth? Great question. So I was so as you guys may also recall this uh, world is flat. It's not by the time it gets Lord of the Rings. Uh things happened. <laughs> to use a millennialism. So that happened. <laughs> so that uh, let me guess. He's right behind me. <laughs> um but they're, no, they're and they're also not quite the pole the, at the poles cuz oh we should also say that the earth at this one point is one symmetrical continent in the middle of a flat plain surrounded by water on all sides so because it's surrounded by water on all sides these aren't really at the north or the south poles also because there's no polarity to a flat disc but okay so the things things probably end up going really well with these lamps i bet that no one breaks them yeah you're thinking this is great you got two lamps the best places in the middle of the world where their lights intermingle and there arose a multitude of growing things, great and small, mosses and grasses and great ferns and trees, whose tops were crowned with clouds as they were living mountains, but whose feet were wrapped in a green twilight. And this all comes because of these epic lamps. Um, and the, em- Emphasis added. Uh, yeah. And the Valar live in the right where the light mingles on the Isle of Almoran in the Great Lake in the middle of the world. It's as, it's, as, it's as good as it could be. So, Kenny, can you tell me more about how swimmingly things continue to go? Yeah, so uh, you would never expect for anything bad to happen now. No, uh, of things, course not. Things are great. But, uh, unfortunately, our boy Melkor... Uh, I hate that guy. <laughs> he's uh, So, our, our boy Melkor starts uh, building a huge fortress deep underground. Uh, it's called Otumno. Ba- basically... Stuff on the earth just starts rotting, like around this, like uh, yeah, around where he, uh, around where his fort now is, because it's underground. But stuff above it just starts rotting and dying, and dying. Like the rivers start filling with slime and muck. If you want to, you can read that passage because it's so good. Yeah, it says, uh, "Green things fell sick and rotted, and rivers were choked with weeds and slime, and fens were made rank and poisonous, the breeding place of flies, and forests grew dark and perilous." the haunts of fear and beasts became monsters of horn and ivory and dyed the earth with blood then the Valar knew indeed that Melkor was at work again and they sought for his hiding place they did not find it no they didn't find it but I do think it's funny that it's like shit randomly just starts dying and becoming comically evil and the Valar are like oh where is he like, <laughs> like what is what is he up to we, we should also mention that they notice shit is up but they also are busy because they're having a big party yeah. And this is a recurring theme in the Silmarillion, that even though the Valar are good guys, they're not omnipotent, and they're not perfect, and they love to party. Uh, Melkor makes his way up to, uh, what is it? Almoran. Almoran, right. Where uh, they're having a big party, yeah, and they're all distracted. Where they're partying, and uh, and he and he breaks the two lamps. He just he just smashes them, right? He, he doesn't like these lamps. And it's worth em- emphasizing that these lamps are like, 
taller, like go into the upper atmosphere, like into space, and yeah. are bright enough to light the entire world. So when they fall over, bad, not good. Yeah, they're they're very large lamps, and uh, and so they they fall. And they land the they land in the ocean and the seas arise in tumult. It says, "Yeah, the, the seas are on fire and the world splits in half." And now you get continents. <laughs> yes, this is how continents form, and the Valar are like, "Well, shit, we we better move because this place is forever is is forever ruined." Uh, you get this. Thus ended the spring of Arda. So this period is known as the spring of Arda. Um. It's, I was kind of thinking of it, it's not, you can't really compare it to, like, a Garden of Eden, but there are some similarities. Yeah. Like, there are some similarities to a brief period at the very beginning where, like, things are great and all is good and then there's a fall. Except in this case, the fall, like, Melkor's clearly a satanic figure, but it's a... It's not a, it's not, there's no temptation there. Yeah, it's also... There's also no people yet. There's no people yet. There are other people besides the Valar. There are other Maya. There's other, like, cool spirits chilling out and having fun. But yeah. yeah, there's no people. It's also worth mentioning that there's no, like, we say brief period. It's impossible to quantify how long this period was because there's no time yet, the way we think of it. There's yeah. no way to quantify time. Well, we got to do something to replace these lamps. Yeah, what, what are we... There's, everything's dark <laughs> There's again. no light. I can't see anything. What are we going to replace these lamps with? All of the Valar are... are they're, walk, they're stubbing their toes, walking into dressers. I think it would be smart to make two other magical objects that Melkor can assail in the future. I get what you're getting at, but I, from their point of view, they're over on a different continent. He's not going to do anything. So it makes sense to, yeah, make two magical uh, Very items. true. So the continent... Sacred, magical, impossible to replicate items. So as the continents uh, break up, the Valar move from uh, that the, the big one continent to uh, Valinor, where they build their, their halls. Um, they build cities like Valmar of Many Bells, which is a great city... They also raise an enormous mountain range called the Pylori, the mountains of Amon, highest upon the earth. And on top of the highest of the highest mountains is Tanaquetil, which is the holy mountain, also called Olusue, Everlasting Whiteness, and El Arena, crowned with stars, and many names beside. Uh, there's even more names that mentions here. Gonna, we, we, we can stop doing I, I won't do all the names again. Yeah. And this is where Manwe, king of the uh, Valar, or chief, I should say, chief of the Valar, and Varda, his wife, live because they can look out from this and see all the way to Middle-earth because their eyes are that good and it's that tall. There's a city, Valmar, and on the by the western gate, there's a giant green mound. Think like a landfill, but prettier. Maybe a, a hill, maybe. For those of you who aren't fans of landfills. One of those I'm, natural landfills. Yeah, a, a natural landfill. Think of a, a natural landfill. And it's called Azelohar. Um, and again, there's multiple names I could give, but that's the one, that's the first one. Uh, and Yavanna hollows it and she sats there for a long time and she sings a song of power. Um, and th th this song imbues into things the power to grow and become, and, you know, get plants there and shit. This is how she like plant seeds, I think. So she imbues it with power and people forget this next detail, but it's crucial. She imbues it with tower, with power and Nienna waters it with her tears she silently cries and waters it with her tears and they're both imbuing this with as much of their power as they can and they will never have as much power again yavana summoning nienna's uh nienna sobbing sobbing 
and uh, we get two trees. The first is called Talpirian, and that it, it, it raises from the earth, and the, the second is called Laurelin. And they're dope. They're awesome trees. So here's the description of Telperion. It had leaves of dark green that beneath were as shining silver, and from each of his countless flowers a dew of silver light was ever falling, and the earth beneath was dappled with the shadows of his fluttering leaves. And then the description of Laurelin is... It bore leaves of a young green like the new-opened beech. Their edges were of glittering gold. Flowers swung upon her branches in clusters of yellow flame, formed each to a glowing horn that spilled a golden rain upon the ground. And from the blossom of that tree, there came forth warmth and a great light. Notice that he genders the two trees. Yes. The first, Telperion, is gendered as male, and, or as masculine, and uh, Laurelin is gendered as, as feminine. Now, it's worth mentioning that during this... The light does not make its way to Middle-earth, which is in eternal darkness and is also filled with the monsters of Melkor and Melkor himself. Yes. Who are going around and fucking everything up. Yeah, and keep in mind now, because of what happened with the lamps, that Middle-earth is now a separate continent. Middle-earth is the name for the continent that will later be inhabited of course, throughout uh, most of the stories that you're familiar with. And Valinor is its own continent that where all of the Valar live, except for Melkor, who is off-brooding, of course. Manwe is still paying attention to what's going over in Middle-earth with, uh, you know, his agents and, and just watching and stuff. But, you know, Melkor is sitting in the dark and, and, and impenetrable shadows, so he can't really be accessed. Ulmo is continuing to uh, swim over, proverbially swim, spiritually swim, you know, vibe out in the waves, direct the oceans, so on and so forth. He's continuing to pay attention to Middle-earth. Ulmo never forsake it. Yavanna keeps it in her thoughts. And Orome, and this is a key plot detail later, Orome is the one who continues going over to Middle-earth. He never leaves. Like, he leaves, he's still living in Valinor, he really sort of has two, has two houses. Maybe we should tax him a little more. But he goes back over to um, uh, Middle Earth, and he'll just ride around and shoot the evil shit. Yeah, keep in mind, Orme is like the hunter, basically. Yeah, he's the hunter. He, he's scary and cool, but but like good guy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's sort of the status quo at the uh, when the trees come into after the trees come into being. So the 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 two trees also their light waxes and wanes on like a coordinated schedule, and so this is how you get the beginning of the count of time. Uh, each is dominant for uh, eight hours or so, and uh, then sort of the other takes over every every eight hours basically, and. Um, I think here you also get some of the, like, uh, it's also similar to just, like, how he's gendering them as masculine and feminine. It's also, like, the sun and moon. The sun is usually is traditionally masculine, and the moon is traditionally feminine. Uh, so there, there's I think there's a little bit there. And then, of course, later we do get a sun and moon. But Yeah, and, like, a sun, uh, the sun is, like, you know, classically big and strong and powerful, and the moon is, like, mysterious and sexy. Ex- yes, <laughs> so hot. So hot. <laughs> Uh, so the, the the last very last paragraph of this first chapter of the Quintus Silmarillion, um, 
you get more, uh, you're starting to, the, the Valar are continuing to prepare for when the children of Iluvatar are finally going to appear. And recall that the children of Iluvatar are elves and, and men, uh, neither of which exist yet. So, um, but they've been foreshadowed explicitly. Oh yeah. The, the, the Valar have been able to see them when Iluvatar like showed them in a vision basically. Yeah. They know what they're going to look like roughly. Yeah. They and, know what they're going to be like though. Right. So they're, they're spending all their time preparing for, for when they get here, you know, t- keeping things tidy and such. Or and, attempting to and not doing a great job. Let's be honest. Right. Um, Sam, do you want to read this? The, the very last paragraph of chapter one. A little preface is the last chapter is sort of talking about them getting ready. Or sorry, the last page is talking about them getting ready. And it talks about uh, how men are going to come and how men are different from elves in that they uh, can die. And they also uh, you know, have a bit more free will. You can't really separate the two things. It is one with this gift of freedom that the children of men dwell only a short space in the world alive and are not bound to it and depart soon, whither the elves know not. Whereas the elves remain until the end of days, and their love of the earth and all the world is more single and more poignant, therefore, and as the years lengthen, ever more sorrowful. For the elves die not till the world dies, unless they are slain or waste in grief, and to both these seeming deaths they are subject. Neither does age subdue their strength, unless one grows weary of ten thousand centuries." And dying, they are gathered to the halls of Mondos in Valinor, and whence they may in time return. But the sons of men die indeed, and leave the world, wherefore they are called the guests or the strangers. Death is their fate, the gifts of Iluvatar, which as time wears even the powers, powers shall envy. But Melkor has cast his shadow upon it, and confounded it with darkness, and brought forth evil out of good and fear out of hope. Yet of old the Valar declared to the elves in Valinor, the men shall join in the second music of the Ainur. Whereas Iluvatar has not revealed what purposes for the elves after the world's end, and Melkor has not discovered it. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a beautiful passage, and uh, I think you also get some of uh, some metaphysical stuff that is truly the lifeblood of the Entmoot podcast. I think you get some. Uh, there's some interesting insights i think in uh in the the dichotomy between elves uh elves being eternal and emo exactly elves they're not immortal but you can think of them as being immortal as we've said in the past uh they die when the earth dies and uh, you know it'll very and they're all austere and pretentious and then you have humans who live these sort of boundless short lives punctuated by you know grief and joy and they're you know less severe than the elves i think there's an interesting dichotomy that that tolkien's drawing there where uh you know seemingly for forever people have written about sort of desiring immortality of of course death is the thing that that i think most people fear most and it's uh and I think that it's this, it's also, a, it's a deeply Christian view as well to be writing about how, no, actually the, uh, this is, this is how things have to be. Uh, and it's, it, it, the alternative is worse. The elves, there's a reason the elves are constantly all sad and emo and angsty. And it's because they almost literally have the weight of the world on their shoulders. Yeah. Whereas people, uh, you know, even people who are sort of, uh, 
who who have sort of a mind of improve leaving the world better than they than they found it um they can still they they know that they'll they're only going to be here for a brief period of time and if they were doing good works or something then you can pass that on as your legacy to the next generation elves don't really have that and this affects why elven and manish governments are different yeah, as we talked about on our on our episode about all of the the authoritarian versus democratic systems in in uh, in Middle Earth, specifically in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, exactly. I think that this is the this is the really the fundamental difference between elves and men. And I think you really it gets at the uh, how essential th- the fact of death is to human society in that if you can imagine human society without that fact it becomes unrecognizable very quickly that that's a perfect place to to uh, transition in onto one of my favorite moments in all of tolkien's uh literature which is this brief but but really poignant and well-written four-page chapter chapter two of aule and yavana yes and uh kenny do you want to get us started i do yes so i was going to i'm honestly just going to read this first page and uh because i think that it's it's worded here better than than we could just for a summary but basically though we talked about this before uh aule is he's the he's the the craftsman and he is uh wedded to yavana who is the uh uh what would you call her the gardener like a tree lady yeah not even (laughs) the gardener is one of the other ones more yeah so here is how this chapter two uh starts it is told that in their beginning the dwarves were made by aule in the darkness of middle earth for so greatly did aule desire the coming of the children to have learners to whom he could teach his lore and his crafts that he was unwilling to await the fulfillment of the designs of iluvatar and aule made the dwarves even as they still are because the forms of the children who were to come were unclear to his mind and because the power of melkor was yet over the earth and he wished therefore that they should be strong and unyielding but fearing that the other valar might blame his work he wrought in secret and he made first the seven fathers of the dwarves in a hall under the mountains in middle earth i want to quickly interject and just say a it's funny that it's seven dwarves for obvious oh, oh, reasons. I didn't even make that connection. Really? No, I didn't. Yeah. The seven it's... Dwarf Fathers, dopey. <laughs> <laughs> They're not lame, though. Yeah. yeah. Um, a, it's funny that it's seven dwarves. B, I think one thing you really get here is that Aule is a little boneheaded in this decision, but he's just lonely. He has no one. I mean, think about how lame it would be if you were really into something. That was your whole life, and you really had no one to talk about it with. None yeah. of the other Valar are into mining. None of them are passionate <laughs> about ore. Right. They're all into other stuff. That's sad. You know, he wanted other, you know. I think Sam and I love this chapter so much because we deeply relate to Ale of the people immediately around us not wanting to talk about the things that we're obsessed with. Also, me and Kenny have recently been playing Dwarf Fortress, and this is I true. get the impulse to want to have a community of dwarves. Yeah, yeah. That's also. Yeah, imagine, like, coming up with dwarves, like Aule. Yeah. I also like that Aule, he didn't intentionally, like, say, like, I'm going to make dwarves by these specifications. He basically said, like, hmm, I've seen what the things that Iluvatar are going to make are, and I'm going to make them, but I want them to be more into ore than them. Yeah, like, <laughs> and I want them to be better built for specifically mining and metalworking. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue now. 
but just for context, though, this is the creation of the dwarves that we know, like Gimli. He's a dwarf. It's the yeah. same same race. Son of who? Gloin. Gloin. <laughs> um, and you can you also get here that uh, this this means the dwarves are older than the than men and and elves. Well, we'll, we'll sort. Of. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. But they were they were brought into existence the for the first time before yeah briefly briefly <laughs> all right all right so um okay so ale creates the dwarves now iluvatar knew what was done and in the very hour that ale's work was complete and he was pleased and began to instruct the dwarves in the speech that he had devised for them iluvatar spoke to him and ale heard his voice and was silent and the voice of Iluvatar said to him, Why hast thou done this? Why dost thou attempt a thing which thou knowest is beyond thy power and thy authority? For thou hast from me as a gift thy own being only and no more, and therefore the creatures of thy hand and mind can live only by that being, moving when thou thinkest to move them, and if thy thought be elsewhere standing idle, is that thy desire? Then Aule answered, I did not desire such lordship. I desired things other than I am, to love and to teach them, so that they too might perceive the beauty of Ea, which thou hast caused to be. For it seemed to me that there is great room in Arda for many things that might rejoice in it, yet it is for the most part empty still and dumb. And in my impatience I have fallen into folly. Yet the making of things is in my heart for my own making by thee, and the child of little understanding that makes a play of the deeds of his father may do so with Without thought of mockery, but because he is the son of his father. But what shall I do now, so that thou be not angry with me forever? As a child to his father, I offer to thee these things, the work of the hands which thou hast made. Do with them what thou wilt. But should I not rather destroy the work of my presumption? I just want to say, I just want to set up this next paragraph and say that every time I read this, it seems so biblical to me. It reminds me of Abraham. Yes, and Isaac. yeah. It, 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 I think it's. It's definitely drawing from that. It's. I feel like it's a, the, the the one of the most clear. Like this is not just like biblical themes. But this is a biblical story. Yeah, it is. And this is like Abraham and Isaac. Yeah, absolutely. Then Aule took up a great hammer to smite the dwarves, and he wept. But Iluvatar had compassion upon Aule and his desire because of his humility. And the dwarves shrank from the hammer and were afraid, and they bowed down their heads and begged for mercy. And the voice of Iluvatar said to Aulai, I also really quickly, I just love that image of the dwarves. They just came into existence. They're like, this is sick. We're alive. Yeah. And then immediately their dad, who had been teaching them how to speak, is about to kill them. I know. And it's, they're I, weeping. Yeah, I find it very heartbreaking. Um, and the voice of Iluvatar said to Aulai, Thy offer I accepted, even as it was made. Dost thou not see that these things have now a life of their own, and speak with their own voices? Else they would not have flinched from thy blow, nor from any command of thy will. Then Aule cast down his hammer, and was glad, and he gave thanks to Iluvatar, saying, May Eru bless my work, and amend it. <sighs> okay, so it keeps going after that, but we can summarize after that. Um, Iluvatar's like, well, not so fast. You uh, keep the dwarves, but they have to go to sleep until I bring uh, humans and elves into being. Yeah, th these are going to be the thirdborn. Yes, exactly. So when I said that they were created before the elves and, and, and men, it, that's technically true because they were briefly sentient. Yeah. But then they sleep. Yeah, and also they're allowed to exist 
They come from virtuous goals. They are not like the creations of Melkor. They were not created to attain power. They were just created by a sort of eccentric guy who just wanted friends to, that would share his interests. But because they were not created by, like, g- literal god, they're always going to be a little weird and not really fit into the picture, though they are explicitly broadly on the good side of things. Yes. I would also say, and this is relevant because I didn't argue with someone on Twitter about this, like, a year ago, who said that they were not the children of Iluvatar, and I said, well, they're the adopted children. And then this person, who is a prominent, prominent figure on Twitter, who's generally annoying, said, um, oh, not a, no, this, this, what are you talking about? I'm going to quote this. This is Eru talking. But when the time comes, I will awaken them, and they shall be to thee as children, and often strife shall arise between thine and mine, the children of my adoption and the children of my choice. He literally calls them his adopted children. So get owned, unnamed Twitter person. Get owned, unnamed uh, Twitter personality who has had op-eds published in the New York Times. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so the, the dwarves do later become... Uh, Iluvatar's adopted children, but right, they don't, the elves and and men f- form a very clear sort of dialectic, as our Hegelian friends might say. The yes. uh, the dialectic between elves and men is very clear, the the main distinction being the presence or absence of, of, of mortality, as we understand it, and um, the dwarves don't fit into that because they weren't created for that purpose. They were created specifically to be cool dudes who hang out with Aule. Yeah, who mine and drink beer. Yeah, which, like... And also, I think you get shades of this with the fact that dwarves um, have no gendered appearance differences, and dwarven women look the exact same as dwarven men because they were just created... Like, you know, there's something there of, like... Absolutely. It's sort of implied that... The, the the divine plan of, of Iluvatar would create beings that are, are clearly gendered. Whereas Aule is not really worried about that because he just wants people to hang out with. Yeah. Like they, so they ha- so they have to be multiple there have to be multiple genders so they can like sexually reproduce. Right. But beyond that, there no real differences. Beyond that, he wants to talk about ores just as much with the ladies dwarves as the men dwarves. Like it it is possible that any of the dwarves from lord of the rings or the hobbit could have been women and, and you wouldn't know you would never know no it actually what i just said is a little cap because there's there's actually a little bit of this is fleshed out with like roles at home which is lame and it's annoying that tolkien did that but yeah and there's I, all gimli is also the son of Gloin specifically yeah, so, yeah uh so okay well anyway though uh so this is such an. Inc- I want to talk a little bit more about what an incredible story this just this beginning part is because that's it's really so that's the meat of of the actual story because that's the creation of the dwarves. You yes. get. I mean, of course, then you have something a, a really important epilogue to it with Yavanna, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, with the creation of the dwarves, though, I think that what's very clearly happening is that there, as far as I can imagine, it's sort of. Of course, it's like the Abraham story in the Bible because of uh, God sort of instructing uh, one of his followers to to kill something or someone that that they love and the his follower uh, doing it very reluctantly well not reluctantly but but going along with it and saying if this is what you will then I'll do it despite how upset this makes me that's that's really the similarity but you don't have, it's Abraham, in a sense, created Isaac, but it's not the same thing that, like, Iluvatar essentially stated, like, you guys, I'm the only thing that gets to that gets to uh, 
bring sentient life into existence. You, you're not allowed to create sentient life. And Aule's like, I want, <laughs> I want friends. And um, I think that a little bit of that is, we call it the sub-creative impulse. That's a big theme in Tolkien's work. It's the idea of, uh, we are, of course, all created and um, we all have the impulse to create things ourselves. And just how Tolkien had the desire to create this imagined history. Yeah, yeah. Or, and also his languages, right? Yeah. It's all, uh, that's all the same thing. It's all basically the idea that, that everyone has that impulse toward, if not artistry, then just creating things. It doesn't have to be art, but it's like, you know, I, we've talked about this in the past, but if you're like an architect or something, I mean, I guess that's also art, but even if you're just like a builder, you, you, you make a, a building or a nice bridge. Any, or- anyone from a civil engineer to a construction worker <laughs> to a day laborer to a welder, you know? <laughs> Anyone? Those are all all of the trades that there are that exist. Yeah, well, civil engineer is not really a trade, but you know, I, I'm mostly just thinking about this type of work. If you're, I don't know, what, what what's a what's an accountant building? There's no sub creative impulse there. Sam is joking. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a so it's the it's the idea though that it's like everyone is just by virtue of existing and moving things from one place to another in our existence is if we're doing it with intent like we are creating things we're rearranging the things that god created and making them into our own little things that that please us and in so doing that pleases god but the one thing that we can't do which i think we're getting a little close to with all this ai nonsense but the one thing that we that we can't do is breathe life into beings. We can't create our we can't create beings from nothing. I think what we're really talking about here is like what we understand as being alive and sentient. Yeah. And uh and we don't have the power to do that. To to bring into being or to to cause to exist sentient creatures, sentient beings. And I think the idea here is that like if we did have that power, we'd probably be doing that all the time. Uh, because, because we're lonely and we also have, uh, lots of problems that we think. And this is why we should be treading lightly for the next 50 years with some technological developments. Exactly. They're actually, I mean, we're, we're kind of joking, but that's not a joke. I know you're not joking. What I just said, I was not joking. Yeah. Like the, the, the technological developments there, I actually do think that there, I actually hadn't considered this before this recording right now, but there are some parallels between Aule and the dwarves and like the like uh, uh, like especially like with like we want to make sure that we what we do we do for the right reasons and put in the proper safety guards and not to get too off the rails I'm not a doomer on this stuff insofar as I think do we put in the right safety valves and think about this hard and do things for the right reason we'll be okay, but we could very well not do that. Getting uh, completely back to the subject. Yeah, so so I think, though, that I think it's easy to see a little bit of any of us in Aule's desire to create beings that he can teach how to how to talk and be friends with, basically, and that share his interests and are like him. Uh, and serve no evil purpose of course right he's not creating anything and and in fact when he's 
you know, he could just be sucking up a little bit to Iluvatar, but I believe him. When, I do too. When Iluvatar is like, Why, why'd you do this? And he's like, I just wanted friends. I was impatient because the friends you said you were going to make aren't here yet. And I just wanted friends. And I did it because I'm imitating you and I love you. And I think that it's awesome that you, you can make stuff. And I wanted to make stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and which is, it's so endearing. And you can imagine an actual, like, son saying that to his dad, like a, like a little kid, maybe. But it's worth noting that these creatures he made are only concerned with ore and metal and mining and all that good stuff. And they have, they have no interest in green things or trees. That's right. And this really upsets... Aule's spouse, Yavanna. Yeah, so this is moving on to really the second part of this story, which I think it's a little bit more than an epilogue, but it's it's the, it's very much the second part to this very short story here. Uh, yeah, so Yavanna is like, what do you mean you made these dudes that are just going to want to chop down trees all day? Like, all I want to do is make trees. What do you? What, what is this? We're, we're supposed to be married. And you guys would never guess, to those who have read Lord of the Rings or seen the movies and but don't know the origins of everything, you would never guess what happens next. Yavanna's like, all right, well, if you're going to make a bunch of guys, I'm going to make a bunch of guys, and they're going to be tree people. And that's how we get the ends. There we go. Yes. And also, the other thing that happens is Monway is like, I'll also make a bunch of guys, and that's the eagles. And we yes. talked about this earlier, but the eagles are in the same class of being as like dwarves and ents. And that, I think, should help explain and answer a lot of stupid questions about Lord of the Rings and everything, is that, like, the eagles are sentient, magical creatures. They are not animals. Yes, that's right. That's right. They're they're just as sentient as the dwarves or as the ants. Um, yes. And so, but so, if you, if you recall, bringing it to Lord of the Rings, now we, we can really start talking about actual characters from Lord of the Rings that, that you know. Uh, you, can, you can remember um, Gimli and Treebeard are distrustful of one another. G- Gimli feels... The he feels uncomfortable. Uncomfortable there, even more than someone else would. And I think it's canon that he's, like, the first dwarf to ever go there and, like, be chilling with Ents. Yeah, so... so and it ends with them being friends. So tying it to characters you might be more familiar with from, from Lord of the Rings, you might recall, if you've seen the, the film adaptation of the... Uh, I think it's... Yeah, it would be in The Two Towers, when Legolas... Uh, Boromir, not Boromir, Aragorn and Gimli enter into Fangorn Forest. This is also in the book too, but uh, Gimli is like, I don't like it here. I, I, I get horrible vibes from this place. There's too many trees. I don't like that. And that's like his... Uh, and then, of course, that's where all the Ents live. And um, eventually, of course, Treebeard and, and, and Gimli become friends. But it is... Um, going back to you know bajillions of years before you can actually this is the story of their creation and the ants and dwarves were created as the result of a feuding husband and wife and they're sort of counterparts to one another yeah the dwarves and the ants are supposed to be like um what do you call it like uh counterparts counterparts but like sort of dialectics yes what's what's the phrase for like that they're pushing against each other countervailing yeah like countervailing forces exactly um in that you know if it's like well if the dwarves are just gonna chop all the trees down then we need some sentient trees to be the they're not trees really but sentient tree-like beings to be the protectors of the forest 
to protect the trees because the trees can't defend themselves. So the dwarves... There's no Lorax here. There's no Lorax. And so, if anything, it's Treebeard. Yeah, yeah. Um, Treebeard is a Lorax. Lorax. Um, But Treebeard's so much more powerful than Lorax was. Let me speak candidly. The Lorax did not get shit done. And that was my takeaway from the story is that he was an inefficient organizer and activist. And that the the, the evil company produced a lot of value. (laughs) The Lorax by Milton Friedman. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Okay, well, anyway, though, I think that that's, that, that's the really the, 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 the main thing, is that the dwarves and the Ents are direct counterparts, and that's just something that I always keep in mind anytime I reread Lord of the Rings or watch the movies, is that with that context, I think you sort of view Gimli and Treebeard and, and their relation. They, I don't think they interact with each other a ton, but just their presence together as as being as important as it is because like the dwarves and the ants would be historically much more sort of opposed to each other just naturally in their constitutions than elves and dwarves for or yeah than elves and dwarves for example and that is of course played up a lot in the relationship between legolas and gimli uh so anyway though those are really the the those are the first two chapters of the Quentin Silmarillion. Um, so now in the the status quo in the world that we're leaving at the end of this episode, Sam, would you like to wrap it up? I would love to wrap things up. So the status quo: all of the Valar and the Maiar are chilling in Valinor on the western side of the world. They're basking under the uh, gold and silver light of the two trees. Um, they're waiting for man and elves. They don't know where they're going to crop up. Or they're waiting for elves, really. They know they're going to yeah. first. They don't know where or when. Yes. They don't know when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen, but they know it's going to happen. And they're trying to get the world ready, although they're not doing a great job doing that, as we'll see in later chapters. Also, uh, you know, Ents and uh, Dwarves have been prepped, but they're not really on the scene yet. I don't think it's mentioned whether eagles are like just brought right in or whether they're prepped and also put on freeze for a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure. And that's where we're ending. Yep, so get yep. ready for next week's episode or two weeks or whatever. Yeah, we're, we're on a little bit less of a schedule due to the, the interruptions uh, by medical issues from both of us. Yeah, these things just sort of come out when they come out. Yeah, that's kind of how it's You get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> okay, well then, I think that's it for this episode. So as always, thanks so much for listening. Sam, this was a, a great pleasure as always. Yes, what a great time. Have a good one. Bye-bye. or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.